Chapter Two of Pitching in a Pinch by Christy Mathewson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two Take Him Out. A pitcher is in a tight game, and the batter makes a hit. Another follows, and some fan back in the stands cries in stentorian tones, Take him out! It is the dirge of baseball which has broken the hearts of pitchers ever since the game began and will continue to do so as long as it lives. Another fan takes up the shout, and another, and another, until it is a chorus. Take him out! Take him out! Take him out! The pitcher has to grin, but that constant cry is wearing on nerves strung to the breaking point. The crowd is against him, and the next batter hits and a run scores. The manager stops the game, beckons to the pitcher from the bench, and he has to walk away from the box, facing the crowd, not the team, which has beaten him. It is the psychology of baseball. Some foolish words once whispered into the ear of a batter by a clever manager in the crisis of one of the closest games ever played in baseball turned the tide and unbalanced a pitcher who had been working like a perfectly adjusted machine through seven terrific innings. That is also the psychology of pitching. The man wasn't beaten because he weakened, because he lost his grip, because of any physical deficiency, but because some foolish words, words that meant nothing, had nothing to do with the game, had upset his mental attitude. The game was the first one played between the Giants and the Yankees in the postseason series of 1910. The batter was Bridwell, the manager was John McGraw, and the pitcher Russell Ford of the Yankees. The cast of characters having been named, the story may now enter the block. Spectators who recall the game will remember that the two clubs had been battling through the early innings with neither team able to gain an advantage and the Giants came to bat for the eighth inning with the score of a tie. Ford was pitching perfectly, with all the art of a master craftsman. Each team had made one run. I was the first man up, and started the eighth inning with a single, because Ford slackened up a little against me, thinking that I was not dangerous. DeVore beat out an infield hit, and Doyle bunted and was safe, filling the bases. Then Ford went to work. He struck out Snodgrass, and Hemphill caught Murray's fly far too near the infield to permit me to try to score. It looked as if Ford were going to get out of the hole when Al Bridwell, the former giant shortstop, came to the bat. Ford threw him two bad balls, and then McGraw ran out from the bench, and with an autocratic finger held up the game while he whispered into Bridwell's ear. Al nodded knowingly, and the whole thing was a pantomime a wordless play that made Sumerun look like a Bush League production. Bridwell stepped back into the batter's box, and McGraw returned to the bench. On the next pitch, Al was hit in the leg and went to first base, forcing the run that broke the tie across the plate. That run also broke Ford's heart, and here is what McGraw whispered into the attentive ear of Bridwell. How many quail did you say you shot when you were hunting last fall, Al? John McGraw, the psychologist, baseball general and manager, had heard opportunity knock. With his fingers on the pulse of the game, he had felt the tenseness of the situation and realized all in the flash of an eye that Ford was wobbling and that anything would push him over. He stopped the game and whispered into Bridwell's ear while Ford was feeling more and more the intensity of the crisis. He had an opportunity to observe the three men on the bases. He wondered what McGraw was whispering, what trick was to be expected. Was he telling the batter to get hit? Yes, he must be. Then he did just that, hit the batter, and lost the game. Why can certain pitchers always beat certain clubs, and why do they look like bush leaguers against others? 
To be concrete, why can Brooklyn fight Chicago so hard and look foolish playing against the Giants? Why can the Yankees take game after game from Detroit and be easy pickings from the Cleveland club in most of their games? Why does Boston beat Marquard when he can make the hard Philadelphia hitters look like blind men with bats in their hands? Why could I beat Cincinnati game after game for two years when the club was filled with hard hitters? It is the psychology of baseball, the mental attitudes of the players, some intangible thing that works on the mind. Managers are learning to use this subtle, indescribable element which is such a factor. The great question which confronts every big league manager is how to break a valuable young pitcher into the game. Rube Marquard came to the Giants in the fall of 1908 out of the American Association, heralded as a world-beater with a reputation that shimmered and shone. The newspapers were crowded with stories of the man for whom McGraw had paid $11,000, who had been standing them on their heads in the West, who had curves that couldn't be touched, and was a bargain at the unheard price paid for him. Rube Marquard came to the Giants in a burst of glory and publicity when the club was fighting for the pennant. McGraw was up against it for pitchers at that time, and one win, turned in by a young pitcher, might have resulted in the Giants winning the pennant as the season ended. Don't you think Marquard would win? Can't you put him in? Mr. Brush, the owner of the club, asked McGraw one day when he was discussing the pitching situation with the manager. I don't know, answered McGraw. If he wins his first time out in the big leagues, he'll be a world-beater, and if he loses, it may cost us a good pitcher but Mr. Brush was insistent. Here a big price had been paid for a pitcher with a record, and pitchers were what the club needed. The newspapers declared that the fans should get a look at this $11,000 beauty in action. A doubleheader was scheduled to be played with the Cincinnati club in the month of September in 1908, and the pitching staff was gone. McGraw glanced over his collection of crippled and worked-out twirlers. Then he saw Rube Marquard, big and fresh. Go in and pitch, he ordered, after Marquard had warmed up. McGraw always does things that way, makes up his mind about the most important matters in a minute, and then stands by his judgment. Marquard went into the box, but he didn't pitch much. He has told me about it since. When I saw that crowd, Matty, he said, I didn't know where I was. It looked so big to me, and they were all wondering what I was going to do, and all thinking that McGraw had paid $11,000 for me, and now they were to find out whether he had gotten stuck, whether he had picked up a gold brick with the plating on it very thin. I was wondering myself whether I would make good. What Marquard did that day is a matter of record, public property, like marriage and death notices. Kane, the little right fielder on the Cincinnati club, was the first man up, and although he was one of the smallest targets in the league, Marquardt hit him. He promptly stole second, which worried Rube some more. Up came Lobert, the man who broke Marquardt's heart. Now we'll see, said Lobert to Rube, as he advanced to the plate, whether you're a busher. Then Lobert, the tantalizing Teuton with the bow legs, whacked out a triple to the far outfield and stopped at third with a mocking smile on his face, which would have gotten the late Job's goat. You're identified, said Hans. You're a busher. Some fan shouted the fatal, Take him out! Marquard was gone. Bescher followed with another triple, and after that the official scorer got writer's cramp trying to keep track of the hits and runs. The number of hits I don't think ever was computed with any great amount of exactitude. Marquard was taken out of the box in the fifth inning, and he was two years recovering from the shock of that beating. 
McGraw had put him into the game against his better judgment, and he paid for it dearly. Marquard had to be nursed along on the bench finishing games, starting only against easy clubs, and learning the ropes of the big leagues before he was able to be a winning pitcher. McGraw was a long time realizing on his investment. All Marquard needed was a victory, a decisive win, over a strong club. The Giants played a disastrous series with the Philadelphia club early in July 1911, and lost four games straight. All the pitchers were shot to pieces, and the Quakers seemed to be unbeatable. McGraw was at a loss for a man to use in the fifth game. The weather was steaming hot, and the players were dragged out, while the pitching staff had lost all its starch. As McGraw's eye scanned his bedraggled talent, Marquard, reading his thoughts, walked up to him. "'Give me a chance,' he asked. "'Go in,' answered McGraw, again making up his mind on the spur of the moment. Marquard went into the game, and made the Philadelphia batters, whose averages had been growing corpulent on the pitching of the rest of the staff, look foolish. There, on that sweltering July afternoon, when everything steamed in the blistering heat, a pitcher was being born again. Marquard had found himself, and for the rest of the season he was strongest against the Philadelphia team, for it had been that club which restored his confidence. There is a sequel to that old low-bird incident, too. In one of the last series in Philadelphia, toward the end of the season, Marquard and Lobert faced each other again. Said Marquard, Remember the time, you bow-legged Dutchman, when you asked me whether I was a busher? Here's where I pay you back. This is the place where you get a bad showing up. And he fanned Lobert. Whiff, 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 like that. He became the greatest left-hander in the country, and would have been sooner, except for the enormous price paid for him and the widespread publicity he received, which caused him to be over-anxious to make good. It's the psychology of the game. "'You can't hit what you don't see,' says Joe Tinker, of Marquardt's pitching. "'When he throws his fast one, the only way you know it's past you is because you hear the ball hit the catcher's glove.' Fred Clark of the Pittsburgh Club was up against the same proposition when he purchased Marty O'Toole for $22,500 in 1911. The newspapers of the country were filled with figures and pictures of the real estate and automobiles that could be bought with the same amount of money, lined up alongside of pictures of O'Toole as when the comparative strengths of the navies of the world are shown by placing different sizes of battleships in a row or when the length of the Lusitania is emphasized by printing a picture of it balancing gracefully on its stern alongside the Singer building. Clark realized that he had all this publicity with which to contend, and that it would do his expensive new piece of pitching bric-a-brac no good. O'Toole, jerked out of a minor league where he had been pitching quietly, along with his name in ten or a dozen papers, was suddenly a national figure, measuring up in newspaper space with Roosevelt and Taft and Jay Johnson. When O'Toole joined the Pirates near the end of the season, Clark knew down in his heart the club had no chance of winning the pennant with Wagner hurt, although he still publicly declared he was in the race. He did not risk jumping O'Toole right into the game as soon as he reported and taking the chance of breaking his heart. Opposing players, if they are up in the pennant hunt, are hard on a pitcher of this sort, and would lose no opportunity to mention the price paid for him, and connect it pointedly with his showing, if that showing was a little wobbly. Charity begins at home, and stays there in the big leagues. At least I never saw any of it on the ball fields, especially if the club is in the race, and the only thing that stands between it and a victory is the ruining of a $22,500 pitcher of a rival. 
Clark nursed O'Toole along on the bench for a couple of weeks until he got to be thoroughly acclimated, and then he started him in a game against Boston, the weakest club in the league, after he had sent for Kelly, O'Toole's regular catcher, to inspire more confidence. O'Toole had an easy time of it at his big league debut, for the Boston players did not pick on him any to speak of, as they were not a very hard bunch of pickers. The Pittsburgh team gave him a nice, comfortable, cozy lead, and he was pitching along ahead of the game all the way. In the fifth or sixth inning, Clark slipped Gibson, the regular Pittsburgh catcher, behind the bat, and O'Toole had won his first game in the big league before he knew it. He then reasoned, I've won here. I belong here. I can get along here. It isn't much different from the crowd I came from, except for the name, and that's nothing to get timid about if I can clean up as easily as I did today. Fred Clark, also a psychologist and baseball manager, had worked a valuable pitcher into the league, and he had won his first game. If he had started him against some club like the Giants, for instance, where he would have had to face a big crowd and the conversation and spirit of players who were after a pennant and hot after it, he might have lost and his heart would have been broken. Successfully breaking into the game an expensive pitcher who has cost a club a large price is one of the hardest problems which confronts a manager. Now O'Toole is all right if he has the pitching goods. He has taken his initial plunge, and all he has to do is to make good next year. The psychology element is eliminated from now on. I have been told that Clark was the most relieved man in seven counties when O'Toole came through with that victory in Boston. I had in mind all the time, said Fred, what happened to McGraw when he was trying to introduce Marquard into the smart set, and I was afraid the same thing would happen to me. I had a lot of confidence in the nerve of that young fellow, though, because he stood up well under fire the first day he got into Pittsburgh. One of those lady reporters was down to the club offices to meet him the morning he got into town, and they always kind of have me, an old campaigner, step away from the plate. She pulled her pad and pencil on Marty first thing, before he had had a chance to knock the dirt out of his cleats, and said, Now tell me about yourself. He stepped right into that one, instead of backing away. What do you want me to tell? he asks her. Then I knew he was all right. He was there with the comeback. But the ideal way to break a star into the big league is that which marked the entrance of Grover Cleveland Alexander of the Philadelphia Club. The Cincinnati Club had had its eye on Alexander for some time, but Tax Aschenbach, the scout, now dead, had advised against him, declaring that he would be no good against regular batters. Philadelphia got him at the waiver price, and he was among the lot in the newspapers marked those who also joined. He started out in 1911 and won two or three games before anyone paid any attention to him. Then he kept on winning, until one manager was saying to another, That guy, Alexander, is a hard one to beat. He had won ten or a dozen games before it was fully realized that he was a star. Then he was so accustomed to the big league, he acted as if he had been living in it all his life and there was no getting on his nerves. When he started, he had everything to gain and nothing to lose. If he didn't last, the newspapers wouldn't laugh at him, and the people wouldn't say, $11,000 or 22500 for a lemon. That's the dread of all ball players. Such is the psychology of introducing promising players into the big leagues. The Alexander route is the ideal one, but it's hard to get stars now without paying enormous prices for them. Philadelphia was lucky. There is another element which enters into all forms of athletics. Tennis players call it nervousness, and ball players, in the frankness of the game, call it a yellow streak. It is the inability to stand the gaff, 
the weakening in the pinches. It is something ingrained in a man that can't be cured. It is the desire to quit when the situation is serious. It is different from stage fright, because a man may get over that, but a yellow streak is always with him. When a new player breaks into the league, he is put to the most severe test by the other men to see if he is yellow. If he is found wanting, he is hopeless in the big league, for the news will spread, and he will receive no quarter. It is the cardinal sin in a ball player. For some time after Hans Wagner's poor showing in the World Series of 1903, when the Pittsburgh club was defeated for the World's Championship by the Boston American League club, it was reported that he was yellow. This grieved the Dutchman deeply, for I don't know a ball player in either league who would assay less quit to the ton than Wagner. He is always there and always fighting. Wagner felt the inference which his teammates drew very keenly. This was the real tragedy in Wagner's career. Notwithstanding his stolid appearance, he is a sensitive player, and this hurt him more than anything else in his life ever has. When the Pittsburgh club played Detroit in 1909 for the championship of the world, many, even of Wagner's admirers, said, The Dutchman'll quit. It was in this series he vindicated himself. His batting scored the majority of the Pittsburgh runs, and his fielding was little short of wonderful. He was demonstrating his gameness. Many men would have quit under the reflection. They would have been unable to withstand the criticism, but not Wagner. Many persons implied that John Murray, the right fielder on the Giants, was yellow at the conclusion of the 1911 World Series because, after batting almost 300 in the season, he did not get a hit in the six games. But there isn't a man on the team gamer. He hasn't any nerves. He's one of the sort of ball players who says, Well now, I got my chew of tobacco in my mouth. Let her go. There is an interesting bit of psychology connected with Wagner and the spitball. It comes as near being Wagner's groove as any curve that has found its way into the big leagues. This is explained by the fact that the first time Wagner ever faced Bugs Raymond, he didn't get a hit with Arthur using the spitter. Consequently, the report went around the circuit that Wagner couldn't hit the spitball. He disproved this theory against two or three spitball pitchers, but as long as Raymond remained in the league, he had it on the hard-hitting Dutchman. "'Here comes a spitter, Hans. Look out for it,' Raymond would warn Wagner with a wide grin, and then he would pop up with a wet one. "'Guess I'll repeat on that dose, Hans. You didn't like that one.' and Wagner would get so worked up that he frequently struck out against Bugs when the rest of his club was hitting the eccentric pitcher hard. It was because he achieved the idea on the first day he couldn't hit the spitball, and he wasn't able to rid his mind of the impression. Many fans often wondered why Raymond had it on Wagner, the man whose only groove is a base on balls. Bugs had the edge after that first day when Wagner lost confidence in his ability to hit the spitball as served by Raymond. In direct contrast to his loss of confidence on Wagner's part was the incident attendant upon Arthur Devlin's debut into the big league. He had joined the club a youngster in the season of 1904, and McGraw had not counted upon him to play third base, having planned to plant Bresnahan at that corner. But Bresnahan developed sciatic rheumatism early in the season, and Devlin was put on the bag in the emergency with a great deal of misgiving. The first day he was in the game, he came up to the bat with the bases full. The Giants were playing Brooklyn at the polo grounds, and two men had already struck out, with the team two runs behind. Devlin came out from the bench. Who is this youthful-looking party? one fan asked another, as they scanned their scorecards. Devlin, some busher, taking Bresnahan's place, another answered. 
Well, it's all off now, was the general verdict. The crowd settled back, and one could feel the lassitude in the atmosphere. But Devlin had his first chance to make good in a pinch. There was no weariness in his manner. Poole, the Brooklyn pitcher, showing less respect than he should have for the newcomer in baseball society, spilled one over too near the middle, and Arthur drove out a home run, winning the game. Those who had refused to place any confidence in him only a moment before were on their feet cheering wildly now, and Devlin played third base for almost eight years after that, and none thought of Bresnahan and his rheumatism until he began catching again. Devlin, after that home run, was oozing confidence from every pore and burned up the league with his batting for three years. He got the old confidence from his start. The fans had expected nothing from him, and he had delivered. He had gained everything. He had made the most dramatic play in baseball on his first day, a home run with the bases full. When Fred Snodgrass first started playing as a regular with the Giants about the middle of the season of 1910, he hit any ball pitched him hard and had all the fans marveling at his stick work. He believed that he could hit anything, and as long as he retained that belief, he could. But the Chalmers Automobile Company had offered a prize of one nice, mild-mannered motor car to the batter in either league who finished the season with the biggest average. Snodgrass was batting over 400 at one time and was ahead of them all when suddenly the New York evening papers began to publish the daily averages of the leaders for the automobile, boosting Snodgrass. It suddenly struck Fred that he was a great batter and that to keep his place in that daily standing he would have to make a hit every time he went to the plate. These printed figures worried him. His batting fell off miserably until, in the postseason series with the Yankees, he gave one of the worst exhibitions of any man on the team. The newspapers did it. They got me worrying about myself, he told me once. I began to think how close I was to the car and had a moving picture of myself driving it. That settled it. Many promising young players are broken in their first game in the big league by the ragging which they are forced to undergo at the hands of veteran catchers. John Kling is a very bad man with youngsters, and sometimes he can get on the nerves of older players in close games when the nerves are strung tight. The purpose of a catcher in talking to a man in this way is to distract his attention from batting, and once this is accomplished, he is gone. The favorite trick of a catcher is to say to a new batter, Look out for this fellow. He's got a mean bean ball, and he hasn't any influence over it. There's a poor boob in the hospital now that stopped one with his head. Then the catcher signs for the pitcher to throw the next one at the young batter's head. If he pulls away an unpardonable sin in baseball, the dose is repeated. You're almost had one foot in the water pail over by the bench that time, says the catcher. Bing! Up comes another beaner. Then, after the catcher has sized the new man up, he makes his report. He won't do. He's yellow. And the players keep mercilessly after this shortcoming, this ingrained fault which, unlike a mechanical error, cannot be corrected until the new player is driven out of the league. Perhaps the catcher says, He's game, that guy. After that, he's left alone. It's the psychology of batting. Once, when I first broke into the league, Jack Chesbro, then with Pittsburgh, threw a fast one up, and it went behind my head, although I tried to dodge back. He had lots of speed in those days, too. It set me wondering what would have happened if the ball had hit me. The more I thought, the more it struck me that it would have greatly altered my face had it gotten into the course of the ball. Ever afterwards, he had it on me, and for months a fast one at the head had me backing away from the plate. 
In contrast to this experience of mine was the curing of Josh DeVore, the left fielder of the Giants, of being bat-shy against left-handers. DeVore has always been very weak at the bat with a southpaw in the box, dragging his right foot away from the plate. This was particularly the case against Slim Sally, the tenuous southpaw of the St. Louis Nationals. Finally, McGraw, exasperated after Josh had struck out twice in one day, said, That fellow hasn't got speed enough to bend a pane of glass at the home plate, throwing from the box, and you're pulling away as if he was shooting them out of a gun. It's a crime to let him beat you. Go up there the next time and get hit, and see if he can hurt you. If you don't get hit, you're fined ten dollars. DeVore, who was as fond of ten dollars as the next one, went to the bat and took one of Sally's slants in a place where it would do the least damage. He trotted to first base, smiling. What did I tell you? asked McGraw, coaching. Could he hurt you? Say, replied Josh, I'd hire out to let them pitch baseballs at me if none could throw harder than that guy. DeVore was cured of being bat-shy when Sally was pitching, right then and there, and he has improved greatly against all left-handers ever since, so much so that McGraw leaves him in the game now when a southpaw pitches instead of placing Beals Becker in left field as he used to. All DeVore needed was the confidence to stand up to the plate against them, to rid his mind of the idea that if once he got hit he would leave the field feet first. That slam in the slats which Sally handed him supplied the confidence. When DeVore was going to Philadelphia for the second time of the World Series in the fall of 1911, the first one in the other town, he was introduced to Ty Cobb, the Detroit outfielder, by some newspaper man on the train, and as it was the first time DeVore had ever met Cobb, he sat down with him and they talked all the way over. Gee, said Josh to me as we were getting off the train, that fellow Cobb knows a lot about batting. He told me some things about the American League pitchers just now, and he didn't know if he was doing it. I never let on, but I just hope that fellow Plank works today, if they think that I am weak against left-handers. Say, Matty, I could write a book about that guy and his grooves now, after buzzing Cobb, and the funny thing is he didn't know he was telling me. Plank pitched that day and fanned DeVore four times out of a possible four. Josh didn't even get a foul off him. Thought you knew all about that fellow, I said to DeVore after the game. I've learned since that Cobb and he are pretty thick, replied Josh, and I guess Ty was giving me a bad steer. It was evident that Cobb had been filling Josh up with misinformation that was working around in DeVore's mind when he went to the plate to face Plank, and instead of being open to impressions, these wrong opinions had already been planted, and he was constantly trying to confirm them. Plank was crossing him all the time, and being naturally weak against left-handers, this additional handicap made DeVore look foolish. In the well-worn words of Mr. Dooley, it has been my experience to trust your friends, but cut the cards. By that I mean one ball player will often come to another with a tip that he really thinks worthwhile, but that avails nothing in the end. A man has to be a pretty smart ball player to dispense accurate information about others, because the big leaguers know their own grooves and are naturally trying to cover them up. Then a batter may be weak against one pitcher on a certain kind of a ball, and may wail the same sort of delivery, with a different twist to it, out of the lot against another. That was the experience I had with Ed Delahanty, the famous slugger of the old Philadelphia National League team, who is now dead. During my first year in the league, several well-meaning advisors came to me and said, Don't give Dell any high fast ones, because if you do, you will just wear your fielders out worse than a George M. Cohan show does the chorus. 
They will think they are in a marathon race instead of a ball game. Being young, I took this advice, and the first time I pitched against Dallahanty, I fed him curve balls. He hit these so far the first two times he came to bat that one of the balls was never found, and everybody felt like shaking hands with Van Haltren, the old giant outfielder, when he returned with the other, as if he had been away on a vacation someplace. In fact, I had been warned against giving any of this Philadelphia team of sluggers high fast ones, and I had been delivering a diet of curves to all of them, which they were sending to the limits of the park and further, with great regularity. At last, when Delahanty came to the bat for the third time in the game, Van Haltren walked into the box from the outfield and handed the ball to me, after he had just gone to the fence to get it. Elmer Flick had hit it there. Matty, he pleaded, for the love of Mike, slip this fellow a base on balls and let me get my wind. Instead, I decided to switch my style, and I fed Delahanty high fast ones, the dangerous dose, and he struck out then and later. He wasn't expecting them, and was so surprised that he couldn't hit the ball. Only two of the six balls at which he struck were good ones. I found out afterwards that the tradition about not delivering any high fast balls to the Philadelphia hitters was the outgrowth of the old buzzer tipping service, established in 1899, by which the batters were informed what to expect by Morgan Murphy, located in the clubhouse with a pair of field glasses and his finger on a button which worked on a buzzer under the third base coaching box. The coacher tipped the batter off what was coming, and the signal-stealing device had worked perfectly. The hitters had all waited for the high-fast ones in those days, as they can be hit easier if a man knows that they are coming, and can also be hit farther. But after the buzzer had been discovered and the delivery of pitchers could not be accurately forecast, this ability to hit high-fast ones vanished, but not the tradition. The result was that this Philadelphia club was getting a steady diet of curves and hitting them hard, not expecting anything else. When I first pitched against Delahanty, his reputation as a hitter gave him a big edge on me. Therefore, I was willing to take any kind of advice calculated to help me, but eventually I had to find out for myself. If I had taken a chance on mixing them up the first time he faced me, I still doubt if he would have made those two long hits but it was his reputation working in my mind, and the idea that he ate up high fastballs that prevented me from taking the risk. Each pitcher has to find out for himself what a man is going to hit. It's all right to take advice at first, but if this does not prove to be the proper prescription, it's up to him to experiment and not continue to feed him the sort of balls that he is hitting. Reputations count for a great deal in the big leagues. Cobb has a record of being a great base runner, and I believe that he steals ten bases a season on this reputation. The catcher knows he is on the bag, realizes that he is going to steal, fears him, hurries his throw, and in his anxiety it goes bad. Cobb is safe, whereas, if he had been an ordinary runner with no reputation, he would probably have been thrown out. Pitchers who have made names for themselves in the big leagues have a much easier time winning as a consequence. All he's got to do is to throw his glove into the box to beat that club, is an old expression in baseball, which means that the opposing batters fear the pitcher and that his reputation will carry him through if he has nothing whatever on the ball. Newspapers work on the mental attitude of big league players. This has been most marked in Cincinnati, and I believe that the local newspapers have done as much as anything to keep a pennant away from that town. When the team went south for the spring practice, the newspapers printed glowing reports of the possibilities of the club winning the pennant, but when the club started to fall down in the race, they would knock the men, and it would take the heart out of the players. 
Almost enough good players have been let go by the Cincinnati team to make a world's championship club. There are Donlin, Seymour, Steinfeld, Lobert, and many more. Ball players inhale the accounts printed in the newspapers, and a correspondent with a grouch has ruined the prospects of many a good player and club. The New York newspapers, first by the great amount of publicity given to his old record, and then by criticizing him for not making a better showing, had a great deal to do with Marquardt failing to make good the first two years he was in New York, as I have shown. A smart manager in the big league is always working to keep his valuable stars in the right frame of mind. On the last Western trip the Giants made in the season of 1911, when they won the pennant by taking 18 games out of 22 games, McGraw refused to permit any of the men to play cards. He realized that often the stakes ran high, and that the losers brooded over the money which they lost, and were thinking of this rather than the game when on the ball field. It hurt their playing, so there were no cards. He also carried Charlie Faust, the Kansas jinx killer, along to keep the players amused, and because it was thought that he was good luck, it helped their mental attitude. The treatment of a new player when he first arrives is different now from what it was in the old days. Once there was a time when the veteran looked upon the recruit with suspicion, and the feeling that he had come to take his job and his bread and butter from him. If a young pitcher was put into the box, the old catcher would do all that he could to irritate him, and many times he would inform the batters of the other side what he was going to throw. He's trying to horn my friend Bill out of a job, I have heard catchers charge against a youngster. This attitude drove many a star ball player back to the minors, because he couldn't make good under the adverse circumstances. But nothing of the sort exists now. Each veteran does all that he can to help the youngster, realizing that on the younger generation depends the success of the club, and that no one makes any money by being on a loser. Traveling with a tail-end ball club is the poorest pastime in the world. I would rather ride in the first coach of a funeral procession. The youngster is treated more courteously now when he first arrives. In the old days, the veteran of the club sized up the recruit and treated him like a stranger for days, which made him feel as if he were among enemies instead of friends, and, as a result, it was much harder for him to make good. Now all hands make him a companion from the start, unless he shows signs of being unusually fresh. There is a lot to baseball in the big leagues besides playing the game. No man can have a yellow streak and last. He must not pay much attention to his nerves or temperament, he must hide every flaw. It's all part of the psychology of baseball. But the saddest words of all to a pitcher are three. Take him out. End of chapter two.